on here. Captain! Signatures detected. Shields up. Signatures detected. Red alert. Context Starfleet Command. What's happening? Context Starfleet Command. Delay that order. Context Starfleet Command. This is the captain. Context Starfleet Command. Get out of my chair. Chair, 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 chair. We have engaged the Klingons. 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 Welcome to The Greatest Discovery. It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm one of those makers. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. How you doing, Adam? I'm staring down the barrel of... Well, we're both staring down these barrels. (laughs) (laughs) It's a double-barreled stare down? It's like Star Trek Donkey Kong, where nothing but barrels are rolling toward us. For an undetermined amount of time. That's the fun of the position we're in, where this is going to be the penultimate Greatest Discovery Sandbox episode before the Lower Decks Rewatch episode comes out two Tuesdays from now. Right. And then that very same week will be the premiere week of Lower Decks and also Star Trek Las Vegas at the same time. So, so, so much is happening in August. So many, so many things are in those barrels that we're staring down. Right. There's a, <laughs> there's one barrel that's just full of hooves. Yeah. That's the Star Trek Las Vegas barrel. Yeah. There's, there's the series Lower Decks, and then behind Lower Decks, the barrel, are are the rest of the new Star Trek seasons coming back to back to back to back. Yeah, I mean, as far as we can tell, I like, I think that there's a realistic future in which. This is the last off-season The Greatest Discovery ever gets. I know. No more no more Risa for us. No more saddles. <laughs> no more anything. Uh, what we did today is we watched uh, a documentary about Star Trek The Next Generation, helmed by William Shatner, or at least hosted by William Shatner. He presented it. This had been something I'd been curious about for a long time. This, this documentary came out in 2014, so it's been out for quite a while. One of the reasons I thought it would make a good subject for a greatest discovery is that early seasons of TV shows are often challenging in ways we don't understand right now, like concurrent to their creation. Absolutely. So, so like we're, we're in the middle of the first one, two or three seasons of these new Star Trek shows. Who knows what's going on behind the scenes? Yeah. And we learn. From this documentary, things weren't always so rosy uh, on TNG production. And chaotic places, you and I both know, Ben, are really challenging places to do creative work. Uh, challenging places to do your best work, for sure. Yeah. And I think that um, this, you know, really presents the <laughs> the story of those years from the victor's point of view. <laughs> always. <laughs> you know? Always. The- History is written by the winners, right? They they do have one uh, interview subject in this movie that is definitely portrayed as the villain of the uh-huh. early years of TNG, but um, but yeah, it's very interesting to think about uh, this doc as it pertains to all television shows. I think that uh, a lot of these kinds of things happen on first seasons, mm-hmm. and and then specifically first seasons of Star Trek shows when you are trying to take a beloved brand and a beloved uh you know universe that people really have a lot invested in and uh, usher it into a new era of television that is a really tough thing to do <laughs> i mean let's not forget that first season or two of of star trek discovery saw saw the sacking of their showrunners 
Right. Yeah. I think there's there's been so much turnover in the in the discoveries writers room that it's like it's hard to believe that it's still a show. Right. And yet, by all accounts, a uh, great place to work by by the people we've talked to anyway. By the people we've talked to anyway, what they've what they've been willing to tell us has been largely pretty positive. And it's interesting you put it like that, Ben, because I think a documentary like this could only have been possible by someone like William Shatner. And I think my expectation before we get into talking about the movie was that this would be a film starring him. Yeah. And I was uh, I was expecting that the entire way. I was pleasantly surprised at at where he centers himself in the story and the answer i think is as an audience to all of these people yeah i think he's just a curious person about this it seem it really seems that way and and he, have, he has so much of the gravity of the star trek universe is centered on his person that i feel like it does seem like people opened up to him in a way that they may have hesitated to uh just a fan film or something like that that has so, to be uh, true yeah yeah so yeah let's uh let's get into it it is a uh 2014 59 minute hmm. documentary <laughs> Ooh, love that runtime give me those sub one hour docs <laughs> it's uh william shatner presents chaos on the bridge i love how this film starts with a preview to itself. It's great. It's it's totally like tell them what you're going to do to them and then tell them and then tell them what you've done. This is this is a documentary that uses a sex format. It really does. It's um, talking dirty to us from Jump and uh, it's showing us kind of the cast of characters and also setting up the kind of central metaphors of the film uh you know we've got a like a country music card card sharken soundtrack mm-hmm. a lot of hardcore twang a lot of hardcore twang a lot of poker chip imagery and it's stated pretty pretty explicitly right at the beginning this is a movie about power and kind of machiavellianism like how roddenberry and how the television network and how the people in charge of making this show wielded power and used power on each other and how they got uh how the how this show came to be from you know from the perspective of how did powerful people all collaborate to to make it happen i think it's a really elegant level setting technology that shatner uses here by making it about power because I think it's super clear that the the target audience for this documentary is the hardcore Star Trek fan. Yeah. And the hardcore Star Trek fan has very deeply rooted feelings about Gene Roddenberry and the rest of the creators of Star Trek. And I think you need to say something like this on the top of this story so that you can go in ready to have your preconceptions changed up a little bit, right? Yeah. And this movie also starts with people contradicting each other, you know, like yeah. they pulled clips all through the the film and brought them up to the front to show how different different people's perspectives were on how some of this stuff went down. No, Gene screwed over all his friends as well as his enemies. But he was a nice man and he was a generous man. They deserve to die and I hope they burn in hell. And in the center of it is Shatner himself. And I think 
One of the things that he dials down quite a bit is the idea that William Shatner knew Gene Roddenberry very well during many projects. And then Gene Roddenberry is described sort of as someone Shatner used to know in the beginning of this documentary. Like the the imagery of, of Roddenberry being out in the desert is, you know, something that you and I have talked specifically about during live shows having to do with the Star Trek original series films. Yeah. And to see that in caricature form was was pretty interesting and fairly brave. I agree. I mean, I think that um, it, it makes it feel very miraculous that we got TNG and that TNG was a success and was more than just and also ran warmed over yeah. shitty modernization of TOS. Like it, it set a new precedent for television and you don't hear about kind of washed up television writers getting a chance to helm a massive project like this <laughs> and, and, and like you hear it characterized like in different ways throughout the film like at some points they're talking about like this is a hundred million dollar deal these guys are like walking into the like executive boardroom at paramount and you know people are like speaking in hushed tones as they as they mm-hmm. walk down the hallway and then in other scenes they're like yeah it's just a low budget kind of dog shit production like that doesn't really have mo- have enough money to do the like ambitious thing that they're trying to do yeah <laughs> like star wagons without sinks and bathrooms and stuff. And and isn't it interesting that like your perspective is based on whether you're the executive class or the performance class of the project, right? The the performers and the production people are seeing this project completely differently from the people in suits behind desks. The people in suits behind desk are occasionally saying, "Oh, we need to free up 2 million dollars in the in the overall budget of the network. We'll steal it from Star Trek." Yeah. The film starts right away in demystifying Gene Roddenberry, disabusing the idea of him as a as a perfect science fiction creator, really giving us the story of a flawed man, you know, with respect to substance abuse and his flagging health and his uh, extramarital relationships and stuff. Yeah, they uh, they describe uh, Major Barrett Roddenberry as sending him kind of on a like every weekend he, she would send him to like a rehab facility essentially, right? Uh, because like when he got TNG from the network, which was its own tricky negotiation, he has to clean himself up and dry out a little bit in order to be like ship shape to to make the show. Did this affect the level of sympathy that you had for him as someone who struggled so hard to uh, get the power he used to have and then retain that power through the project of Star Trek The Next Generation? Yeah, I think a little bit. I mean, it is sad. I think that the thing that is abundantly clear about Gene Roddenberry is that he was absolutely brilliant and incredibly creative i mean the level of detail of this world is so mind-boggling and like when he is calling a writer into his office to berate them for not knowing the difference between shields and deflectors it becomes clear that he like really passionately cares about it and takes it really seriously and it's sad to think of somebody that created something like that as meaningful as that to as many people as it is kind of 
wallowing in self-pity and not able to create new things. Like when when he is in the desert, you know, he's making failed pilots and, and you know, getting a little bit of like consulting money from the motion picture series, but he has really sidelined as as a creator. And I think as a creator is where he really shone uh, in his in his life. <laughs> and, and many other parts of his life seem to be areas where he did very badly. It's so affecting to think of a person who, you know, manages to get back on the horse and then so quickly is having many strokes and walking into walls. Yeah. You know, in public. Yeah. Around people that he works with. And that was the part that I found the most affecting and sad about the the end parts of Gene Roddenberry's life. It wasn't that it wasn't that I disagreed with his many methods for for holding on to the power that he had. It was instead that it was really all he cared about toward the end because if he cared about anything else you're not going to be walking into walls in a conference room you're going to be you know at home with your family or you're going to be reading the newspaper by your backyard pool or whatever like this was it you'll go to tahiti and you'll stay there yeah yeah the problem the problem was that he came back (laughs) from tahiti it almost feels like this movie is making the case that he worked himself to death and that's yeah pretty bleak I can both understand William Shatner's reluctance to like make a really strong case about that and also admire his interest in just letting the viewer decide what happened and and what the meaning is behind all of those scenes as told by the interview subjects. Yeah. Speaking of the interview subjects, one problem I had with this movie from just a viewership standpoint is that they throw little lower thirds up on screen for the first time you see many of these interview subjects and then never do it again yeah (laughs) and i could not retain like was wait was this guy like executive in charge of production at paramount or gene roddenberry's personal assistant i can't remember anymore (laughs) i had to roll it back to get john pike's credit specifically because he's in easily half of the movie yeah. And by the time I realized he was going to be one of its main characters, I had to roll it back and see that he was president of Paramount TV during during the time of the story's telling, you know. Do you think that uh do you think that that's where they got the name for uh for the Captain Pike <laughs> character? <laughs> I don't know. I found him really engaging as an interview subject, and I think when you're a, a documentary director, he's the type of personality that you want in that seat. Yeah. He is, but he's also, like many, many of the other people on screen, does not treat Star Trek as a semi-holy property that, like, is special or distinct from other television shows. Like, my, like the biggest laugh line of the movie for me was, was when he returned, like, the third time to yell about how he doesn't understand what Encounter and Firepoint was about. What in the world is that thing that looks like a big jellyfish? Wow. Like, he didn't get it at all and, like, was the person who was deciding whether this was happening. (laughs) It's amazing that you can be in a position of power like that where you're green lighting or red lining a project for so much money 
And getting it isn't a qualification for that decision. Right. It's insane. I mean, it's a. I'd say it's a bit like uh, Jesse Thorne uh, inviting us to bring our program, The Greatest Generation, to MaximumFun.org. It's like he, he listens to it and he's like, I don't know what this is, but... <laughs> it's like I'm, I'm sure somebody will like it <laughs> worked out well for him i'd say yeah and it was a smash the other thing about like pike specifically is there you know conversations about like the the brinksmanship over like is the pilot going to be a two-hour thing or a one-hour thing is gene roddenberry going to be involved in the reboot of star trek and and that's where this character of Leonard Maslish comes in, who is Gene Roddenberry's personal attorney, who seemed like the most interesting character in the film. And I was very sad that, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing he passed before they filmed this, so they don't have an interview with him. With how he's caricatured in this film, though, like... Are we sure he's dead? He seems like a gargoyle type <laughs> type person. Yeah, maybe he like he like absconded to Mexico with the budget for a three episode arc in a briefcase or something. Yeah. It's wild. Like they talk about like He's the only person everyone can agree about, right? Yeah, he's the only person everybody can agree was like an out and out villain. The mm -hmm. other the other uh, villain of the film, I would say, is Maurice Hurley, but mm -hmm. Maurice Hurley is not like is not treated as just like downright evil. Mm -hmm. uh, the, <laughs> the way the attorney is, uh, because like he comes in to basically fight to get Roddenberry into the executive producer role on the show, because Paramount owned Star Trek and could just do it without him if they wanted. But then he becomes this kind of he's like haunting the writer's room and like going through people's personal files and stuff and, and really comes off as as a terrible man. He's standing right next to an open window, no screen, no anything. And I'm thinking it would be so easy to push that bastard out the window. <laughs> I wonder how common this is among the creative class, right? Like creative people and I include us in this description, our strengths are are the work it's not the the administration around the work and so right. i can understand gene roddenberry's interest in like finding someone to be his hitman a little bit <laughs> to actually go out and and like if you're a softy and a pushover and your mind is on the creative like you're you're not often going to get what you need to to do your project. And I, I understand the utility in general of a Leonard Maislish, but the specific instrument of a Leonard Maislish, I think, could not possibly have been what Gene Roddenberry had in mind with, with his installation, right? Like, I understand the necessity for a guy like that, but him specifically seems truly awful. One thing I kept having to remind myself, being a creative person... Is that like this is an operation that is so many orders of magnitude bigger than anything I've ever been involved with? Yeah, like you know, or I've will been ever? On, uh, yeah, like I've been on some sets where I had I don't know, I think fifteen people working on a thing I was directing is probably the biggest I ever got, and uh, for the last several years, like the size of our team is like you and me and occasionally Rob. <laughs> yeah. And I Rob like was when, a terrible Leonard Maislish for us. 
Yeah, he, he just wasn't he, mean enough. He wasn't. He was. He wasn't cruel. He wasn't. Um, <laughs> he wasn't as cutthroat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he had too many uh, morals. Yeah, I think. But like the idea that Roddenberry may not have even been aware of some of this stuff, you know, that's like, yeah, that's awful. It's awful, and it's and it and it boggles my mind because I feel like. Generally speaking, I'm aware of like most of the things that happen at the Uxbridge Shimoda Corporation. I mean, and here's the order of operations thing to this kind of storytelling is that Gene is set up to be a doddering, sick person. And then not long after, we're introduced to Leonard Mazelish as if there is a A to B reason for that, where right. I'm not sure if that's true. You know, if yeah. I don't believe that the reason that Leonard Mazelish was able to get away with what he did is because of Gene Roddenberry's flagging health. I think it's more likely that it was a leadership style problem where Gene might have been uh, too loose or trusting of the people around him. I don't know. But then but then that is contradicted with what sort of grip he seemed to have over his creative. Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to parse. I think that one thing that this movie really highlights is how like there they're not really simple conclusions in this story. Yeah. I mean there's there's some kind of like grand conclusions about like Machiavellianism and John Pike being a poker player. <laughs> like you can tell that Shatner adver- admires the hell out of the out of like the TV executives <laughs> interviews. I'm glad but- we're talking about motivation and stuff and drawing our own conclusions about some of these questions instead of arguing about whether or not William Shatner answered those in a way that makes sense, you know, on screen. Like, I'm really glad that at least Shatner stepped out of the way and isn't drawing his own conclusions in front of us. Yeah, because I don't think that I don't think it's easy to like draw those conclusions. and, And I like that they aren't drawn explicitly yeah i think it's the failing of many documentaries is that the documentarian inserts themselves into the story yeah there are very few actors in this and i thought that the selection of actors that they chose to interview was pretty interesting yeah you've got sir patrick stewart you've got john delancey you've got Jonathan Frakes, which, you know, if I ever got to uh, sit down and interview him, I might hesitate to even ask him a question. No way. He just looks like he was having so much fun just being talked to, you know? (laughs) The gum in his mouth, though. Yeah. (laughs) That's, I put that on Shatner. You got to tell your interview subject to take out the gum. You got to get the gum, got to get rid of the gum. But Frakes is a fucking director. (laughs) He should should know that. Yeah. He should know. Do you think that's Uh, a power move? I don't know. Like it almost like it almost feels like he was just like wandering in a hallway on the Paramount lot. And Shatner was like, hey, you want to answer like four questions about TNG really quickly? And he's like, yeah, I got five minutes for you. When was the last time you had gum? I I feel like gum as a thing is something I haven't had in a long time. Did gum go away? I feel like it's mints now. I think that there are people that are like lifelong committed gum enthusiasts and especially the ex smoker community, I bet. Right. That's a thing. Yeah. And then there's the rest of us for whom it is almost entirely useless. I feel like that's just one of those inane questions you could ask 
<laughs> a Jonathan Frakes if you were sitting next to him on an airplane. Hey, you still chew gum? And and Frakes would just go on and on with a really interesting <laughs> answer. I saw you in a movie once chewing gum. Is that something you do like... <laughs> Where'd, where'd that come from? Is that like an affector? Um, the other um, actors that uh, are in it are Denise Crosby, Gates McFadden, and Diana Muldaur, mm-hmm. and they provide some pretty interesting perspective on why whence potted plants, I think. Mm. And uh, this is something that we've talked about a ton on The Greatest Generation, why the women on the Enterprise D are so underwritten uh, relative to their male counterparts. And I I didn't ever really know specifically why Denise Crosby left the cast before this, but she explains, like, I I didn't get any lines. I didn't get anything to do. I wanted them to make fake legs so that when they were close up on Peace Do, I I didn't have to be standing at the horseshoe behind him. I took some umbrage with John Pike and his comment about, you know, Denise Crosby wanting to go be a a movie star as a result. And like, it's easy to retrospectively roll your eyes at someone else's career ambitions, but fuck that. Yeah. John Pike. Like, and also fuck that Bill Shatner. Like that part didn't need to be in the movie. Like the, the reaction to Denise Crosby's quite valid description of her time on the show and her interest in in you know acting more just period just acting more just get, getting more stuff to do yeah. and and he turns it into a personal attack on her talent specifically like he's like yeah she's a real pretty face but she's no Catherine Hepburn or something like that and it's just like don't say things like that period and especially not when a camera is on you because now Denise Crosby, if she like goes to the premiere of this film, has to fucking sit there and and see you saying it. Fuck that. It's worth talking about because this is one of the few times it happens in the film where where a creative choice is made as a documentarian to like make someone who's participating in the documentary not look good. Yeah, and I think that Pike is left to kind of twist in the wind on some of the pretty impolitic things that he says. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, he's definitely not squeaky clean. And uh, similarly, (laughs) uh, though to a much smaller extent, I love Dr. Pulaski as a character, but Diana Muldaur bodies TNG in the single line of hers that they edited into this documentary. They were not that interested in renewing me and I was certainly not that interested. If she was, if she ever like wanted to win over the TNG fan base for Dr. Pulaski, she, she canceled her uh, ability to do so. It's interesting how Patrick Stewart sort of recovered from his dismissiveness of the cast as being non-serious about things. But Diana Muldaur, like, never changed her mind (laughs) about that. She's like, this isn't a show. This is just a bunch of uh, models and and sets and crazy technology with actors populating it. But what's so interesting about that is, and this is something that Iris Stephen Bear says, like, the first two seasons are unwatchable because they're about plot and... The third season is about character. Yeah. And I think they're talking about the same problem. I have tried 
so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host. And I gotta tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from, what am I gonna have for dinner, to eating a great dinner in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals. And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product, or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next gen skin safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth, wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. (laughs) Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. So Maurice Hurley is a name that I didn't really know. As a, like as, as a lifelong TNG fan, I was not... Uh, I don't think his name ever really registered for me on the opening credits, but he was essentially the showrunner for seasons one and two and is the secondary villain of this movie. Yeah. And (laughs) 
The movie almost feels like it's making fun of him. Gene's ideas about the future and about man are wacky doodle. But he's like a he's like a cop show writer who's extremely proud of his work on cop shows. Like he lists his credits previous to TNG and talks about how great all of these shows were and and then talks with immense disdain for the like kind of future that Roddenberry predicts, but also was apparently like the hardest assed uh, follower of the rules that Roddenberry set out for how they would tell stories on Star Trek The Next Generation, which were like the no interpersonal conflicts between the main cast kind of kind of rules that we've talked about a ton. It's interesting that like in the checks and balances of Star Trek The Next Generation, there was like the executive branch of Gene Roddenberry, the judicial branch of Leonard Majlish and the executive branch <laughs> of Maurice Hurley. Because at times, Maurice Hurley talks about, you know, carrying Gene's water. But then out of the other side of his mouth, he's like, Gene didn't want a writer's room. Gene wanted ghostwriters, basically. And I'm paraphrasing his description of yeah. of what happened between Gene and 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 the writers. But and then they their their relationship is brought to a head where he threatens to leave, but Roddenberry say says that like he'll leave if if Hurley stays. And then Roddenberry and Majel Barrett, Roddenberry go to Tahiti and then like everything changes. And it's not that um, it didn't really seem like it, everything changed for the better. It just no. changed for the like more hard line and more. Uh, I mean, and and Michael Pillar coming in is is discussed as being like a real turning point for the series when it started to get good, when it started to become the thing that people really love. And I mean, that's also complicated by the fact that so many of the things that they use to great effect story-wise in seasons three through seven are ideas that were brought into the series in season one, you know? Right. There really does seem to be a tension among the interview subjects about who's responsible for that, though, you know? Yeah. And I think that, like, one of the things that, really struck me about the writers specifically is how like self-important <laughs> they can get like all of them like both you know from the Maurice Hurley side but also you know Brandon Braga and DC Fontana are all interviewed in this and, and like there's some smugness by the writers of like wanting to be kind of treated as like the as as the as the people who really make the show. Right. And I think that that's like a, you know, when you're, when you're as far behind the camera as a writer is, it can be pretty frustrating to see all of the like love and adulation poured on other people when you feel like it's your story or whatever. In a documentary ostensibly about power, it's super interesting to see a documentary full of interviews with actors seed that power yeah. Almost constantly throughout the film, we're hearing about how little power Patrick Stewart had. Yeah. And and the rest of the actors. And this is a film made by the er Star Trek actor of all time. <laughs> and it's interesting how okay Will, Bill Shatner is about telling that kind of story and allowing it to be told in this way. Yeah. I loved the part about the Today Show coming to film on the set of TNG and... 
like Peace Do comes across as being very humorless in this, or at least having been humorless at the time he was making TNG, because he's like, we we can't have any like jokey stuff. We can't have anything that like makes light of Star Trek in this Today Show stuff that we're doing. And like he is he like swears on live television and storms off the set. Moods a thing for cattle and love play. And then gets in tons of trouble with the with the network boss. Were you clear about how many of these interviews were done for Shatner and and which interviews were taken from previous interviews and moved into this documentary? Because I can't remember a shot with Shatner and Stewart in the same room. Yeah, I don't think they are. Yeah. I, I think they shot a lot of this at JPL yeah. in that control room, yeah. which, um, you know, like... <laughs> As a I composition, picked- it's super interesting to have like deep background... Yeah, like people, help like NASA people doing stuff, like mm-hmm. doing real NASA stuff. Uh, I imagine if you're Bill Shatner, you can call JPL and say, hi, this is Bill Shatner. I would like to come sh- use your facility to shoot a right, right. series of interviews. And, and everybody there is like, cool. Yeah. Uh, can we shake your hand when you come? <laughs> yeah. It's so hard if you're doing a, a bunch of interviews to make them look different and interesting yeah. in a, yeah. in a, in a, project like this and i think jpl as a setting is great for this sort of project yeah i agree but uh to your point i don't think that that piece to interview feels the same and i think you're probably right that it was like either shot elsewhere shot backstage at a star trek convention or uh or shot for something else and just licensed into this film that's why the tone just feels different with a few of these interview subjects and Patrick Stewart being one of them, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. like he's not a humorless person. I thought that story of, of him uh, cursing and walking off the set when the weatherman put on his uniform is emblematic of that. Like, that was awesome. An awesome move by him. <laughs> and then, like, the the conflict between him and John Pike in the aftermath... Like, John Pike is set up to be, like, the ball breaker who never loses a hand of of studio poker. Right. But he showed his cards at the end of that. And that's what redeems the John Pike character in the right. documentary. Like, yeah. like, that he is humanized in that moment. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's funny. I mean, I was watching this with an eye to thinking about Star Trek Picard as well. Yeah. And... It's so interesting the journey Patrick Stewart has had with this character and this franchise because he has spoken a lot publicly about how he like never unpacked his bags for the first several episodes of the show. Mm-hmm. And he really does seem to have a in in this era, in the you know, in this like first three seasons era, really does seem to have a love-hate relationship with the material and the people he's working with and like really wanting to take it seriously but all the american actors are always like goofing around and playing grab ass on the set no gags no jokes no fooling around and he (laughs) he hates that and then like wants the character to have like more interesting character moments but you know is also like prickly and recalcitrant in you know, moments where he could be like humanizing himself. 
And now he's like re reviving it in the in an executive producer and star capacity. Yeah, I wonder how often he thinks about what happened to him during early TNG. Maybe we'll get the chance to ask him one day. Yeah. One of the things I read about this documentary is that William Shatner and Maurice Hurley have been friends for decades, like hangout yeah. friends. And that right. Maurice Hurley, after he walked off the Paramount lot, you know, clapped his hands together and, and said, I'm done with this shit. Yeah. Know, like famously never talked about his time there really at all until this documentary. And I think that's got to be so exciting if you're a documentary minded person to go like, well, this is a story that has never been told from this perspective. If I can just get this one central character in place, I can build around it. And you can see when you watch this documentary, how that came to be like, we're, we're backfilling these stories with these other characters around Maurice Hurley. We're installing the secondary character of John Pike. Right. And then we're seasoning it throughout the rest of the hour. And I think, it's an effective way to tell this story. I thought it worked. I did too. I wonder how Maurice Hurley felt about Shatner after this doc because yeah. I, I don't think he comes off looking that good. I don't think he comes off as someone who cares about how he looks, though, in a way that effectively describes his character to me as a person. Yeah, you might be right. One uh, thing that the film gets at... Uh, at one point, I think maybe it's with the Brandon Braga section where they're interviewing him, is the idea that Gene Roddenberry sort of imagined himself as a Kirk type in the when when he was making TOS and sort of imagined himself as a Picard type when he was making TNG. Like, and they they go so far as to like Photoshop his head onto the characters' bodies mm-hmm. uh, in the in the extensive animated graphics that uh, form the backbone of this film's visual language. You kind of say that derisively. <laughs> Did you not enjoy that part of it? No, I, I, I thought that that was very enjoyable and a, and a perspective on those two characters that I had never heard before. I mean, if there is one thing that is derisive about it is uh, the way this film talks about the fans who are depicted as like actively protesting in the streets about yeah, not like, my Star like Trek. dumpsters on fire and like rolling over cars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like I uh, I think it's very interesting that Picard is the is the like wise older man by the time they make TNG and it's not like it's it seems like Roddenberry was the main person resisting the calls to make the captain on the new ship be like a a fuckboy the way Jim Kirk was. Right. As a creative person goes through the seasons of their life, I think they see their hero figures change along with them. And maybe yeah. that's that's what we got here. And I wonder if that was at all influenced by the way the Kirk character changes in the films. Like the hmm. like his arc in the films is about like transitioning into uh being an older man and being Maybe not the like young adventure swashbuckling type that he once was, and regretting mistakes made and and opportunities not taken and stuff. Right, and it seems like Picard is very much in dialogue with that presentation of Kirk, yeah, as much as he is in dialogue with the original series era presentation of Kirk. Like, 
could you be a older man that isn't full of regrets and is more like self-confident and and proud of the accomplishments that he's already made and and is there helming the the flagship of the fleet because he deserves to be and and that's sort of uh an amazing thing for Roddenberry to have written somewhat about himself. Yeah, it makes me wonder to what extent Shatner is self-aware enough to see himself in that kind of story as well, you know? Yeah. He's he's someone who has grown into someone super comfortable with his flaws and his interests and uh, for better yeah. or worse, you know? <laughs> I think so. So by the end of the film, we get our final like rescue 911 moment where Shatner walks into frame and ties the whole thing up. You know, TNG ended up, you know, it was it was a it was a difficult birth, <laughs> but Star Trek The Next Generation ended up as a great success. And he contextualizes it in terms of the awards that it received. And I thought that was an interesting way for him to do that. It was less about it being a a work that was recognized critically as something good, though I guess when you recognize a work with awards, you know, that those go hand in hand. But like TNG is beloved. Right. And you could make the argument that it's more beloved than some of the other Star Trek franchises. That's something William Shatner would never say, especially <laughs> in a documentary like this. Yeah. But it's interesting that in his wrap up, he's like, yeah, uh, won some statues. Things ended up being okay for everyone involved. Even though it wasn't a network show, it was a first run syndication show, it yeah. got some Emmys. Can yeah, you believe he, it? <laughs> he kind of tweaks the nipple of the thing uh, before walking off. And then, like, he kind of steals the valor by using the last scene from TNG's last episode, which for some reason is not in HD compared to the other HD clips that we get from TNG in the documentary. And that's and that's the end of the thing. It's a love letter in a lot of ways. It is very much focused on like the business and brinksmanship. Like there is there's a lot of um you know discussion of the optimism for the future and the humanism stuff that Roddenberry put into the show, but I'd say largely the the drama and brinksmanship in this uh are about <laughs> business decisions and and creative differences and ironically all of the conflict that was happening on this show behind the scenes when interpersonal conflict was like essentially forbidden from being presented on screen yeah but uh but it it, it really does uh feel like a a loving tribute at the end of the day, which is not something that I would necessarily have predicted uh, Shatner be there for. Not so wacky doodle after all. Did you like this documentary, Ben? I did. Um, maybe like if I have some criticisms of it, it's a little bit over obsessed with the term wacky doodle <laughs> and a little bit light on explanations about what went down with the lawyer and that like that whole chapter but i learned a ton about uh, a thing i really love and i love thinking about star trek the next generation and i love thinking about these characters and like how how we got to where we got with them and i think 
uh, it's really to Shatner's credit as a director that he explores as many elements of the story as he does with the the short 59 minute runtime of this film like yeah i was blown away that we were able to get stuff about like writers feeling jilted by the way promotions happened yeah the dc fontana part was incredible to me how how gene wedged his way into that credit which is like so so consistent with his whole deal, like how he wrote lyrics to the TOS theme song to get more money. Like it's, right. it's so craven. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the day, I thought, uh, I thought it was a really interesting film. And if, uh, if you are a fan of TNG and you can find a way to watch this movie, I, uh, I, re- I would recommend it. How about you? Yeah, I liked it too. And I think I liked, it more in proportion to what I was expecting. Yeah. Because I was expecting kind of a grudgy tabloid-like documentary. Right. But I was so satisfied and happy and surprised with just how basically curious it was about what happened. And I think there's been a lot of talk lately about documentary ethics. I think, you know, one instance that is very current is, is has to do with the Anthony Bourdain documentary that depending on when you're hearing this episode is either about to come out or has been out already. And like the ethics of, of using artificial intelligence to manipulate a person's words into saying what you want them to say, like a documentary is only as strong as the ethics of the documentarian. Right. And I thought Shatner conducted himself with ethics that I admire. Mm -hmm. He got out of the way of the thing, and I was happy that he did. I think it's more difficult to tell a forensic story than what is told here, which is, I think, of as more of an emotional retelling of a thing. Right. Yeah, you kind of get the gestalt of what the yeah. what the chaos was without... I don't, I don't think that, like, we are in a courtroom putting seasons one through three of TNG on trial. (laughs) But when you set it up as a story about power and with how subjective a story about power is. Yeah. I think this documentary was successful in articulating that story, you know, because, because stories about power are better told emotionally than, than academically or factually. I totally agree. Um, do you want to see uh, what kind of stories we have in the Priority One inbox, Adam? Yeah, those are the facts. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. We've got a couple of P1s here. The first one is of a promotional nature, Adam, and it goes like this. What's missing from your life? If, by some small chance... It's a bald white guy living in Hong Kong, streaming Pokemon Go IRL and learning Japanese with Duolingo, then you are in luck. Follow Anthony Kelly Yip on Twitch before it gets banned here because of that thing Ben and Adam said. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh... P.S. This is a small channel. I'm not that great with people, so if you could discuss it amongst yourselves and limit any new followers to, like, less than six, that would be great. P.P.S. Subscribe to Ben and Adam. They're nice. So check out twitch.tv 
slash Anthony Kelly Yip. That's uh, Anthony K E L L Y Y I P. Uh, and he says, I was going to share my website, but who knows when this will air, and I spent my renewal money on a P1. Can I just say that I feel a great affinity for Anthony Kelly Yip because Anthony Kelly Yip shoots their shot, and then almost as soon as the ball leaves their hand, there are some regrets about shooting the shot. <laughs> and I know that feeling so well. Yeah, can relate. <laughs> Uh, well, that sounds like a very uh, a very fun Twitch. It's just uh, it's it's Pokemon Go IRL and Japanese and Duolingo, but from Hong Kong. I'm gonna have to flip open the the Duolingo Japanese style. I've been dabbling with the Polish for a while. Oh, yeah? but I think the the I gotta bring back the the Japan Duolingo. I want to go back to Japan. Le- I've been learning Yiddish in Duolingo. I wonder how how much we could communicate Polish to Yiddish. We can barely communicate with each other in English, Ben. <laughs> Fair enough. It's a, it's totally fakakta. Uh-huh. <laughs> ben, our second priority one message is of a personal nature. It's to you and me. Whoa. And it's from Mike Mock and, you know, Christar Shrimp Colgar, don't you? Yeah, that, that tends to be a package deal, those three. Message goes like this. What are your thoughts on Upper Deckers? Please be specific. <laughs> well, Mike Mock and Chris Darshrimp Colgar, I think yeah. much like the the jokey sex acts of like the flying camel or the the dirty Sanchez or the or any of those other like awful things that people in 2008 would walk around and say to each other. <laughs> I don't think upper deckers are a real thing. I'm going to say that right now. I think I think they're jokes. That people yeah. talk about doing, but no one ever does it. You'd really have to be a bad person to do it. Ben, you just got a toilet without a tank, didn't you? How are you supposed to upper deck that thing? Uh, I did, and I specifically got it to reduce the likelihood <laughs> the of, upper, of deckers. upper deckers happening at your yeah. house. Yeah, because it's kind of been a plague over here. It's but, so uh, weird that it's just you and your wife living during quarantine and so many upper deckers happening. Yeah, but we ordered it from uh, from Costco, that toilet, and like all of the major purchases we've made at Costco, it didn't work, and oh, it was geez. a nightmare to return it. So I'm uh, not going to, to, to brook any Costco hate in these parts. <laughs> oh, really? So, I, so, I love that So you like company. a company that sells expensive products that are exclusively bad and non-functional? They made it right, didn't they? <laughs> Eventually, I took uh, hours of my life I spent on Holt getting rid of this fucking toilet. But so now we have a toilet that does have a tank and it works. Costco is an ancient company run in an ancient way <laughs> and all of their problems are self-inflicted because of those reasons. Let's let's sell people major appliances and um key pieces of their uh, their restroom but have them be kind of bad and like like for example if it's a toilet you want the poop to kind of stay in it when you you you, you press flush you the should poop have just gotten stays. a kirkland signature toilet ben that's your problem yeah well they didn't have a tankless option and that was the main selling point was uh now no upper decker it's like uh hey you're not gonna get upper deckers but the shit is gonna be stuck in the bowl so you know what what's it's the same difference? difference right it, you <laughs> You had a lower decker is what you had. 
I had a lower decker. Hey, guess and, uh, what? That would make a great name for a Lower Decks podcast. We should just put that out there because everything we say gets turned yeah. into the title of a podcast. It really does. Yeah, yeah. If you if you would like to start a Lower Decks podcast, just refer to this yeah. or any previous thing we've said about it. <laughs> And uh, I'm sure you'll find a title in there somewhere. Well, thanks to Anthony Kelly Yip and Mike Mock and Chris Darshrimp Kolgar for their Priority One messages. Yeah, uh, thank you. We've got an entire season of Lower Decks and new Star Trek coming up and slots available for Priority One messages. You can create your own over at MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. And, Do uh, it. And they really support the production of the show. They which do. will be never ending starting <laughs> in two weeks hey ben what's that adam did you discover yourself and edward larkin i think i'm gonna give it to ira stephen bear gotta do that did he did he get uh, the larkin for the uh the ds9 <laughs> documentary i can't remember uh, boy, I, that was a, uh, we, so there was the, uh, what we left behind documentary that we reviewed in the bonus feed. Uh, yeah, this is not our first documentary review. Yeah. And I don't remember who the drunk Shimodas were on that, but, uh, it, it's very likely that he was among them. Mm-hmm. Um, I laughed out loud when, uh, it was revealed that it, uh, we have Iris Stephen Bear to thank for the invention of Risa. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I loved that. Uh, I love that Roddenberry wanted it to be way more like pansexual than it was depicted as on the show. That was that was really cool. It was kind of an amazing revelation, and uh, I I loved that. Like he seemed like a kid in a candy shop telling that story. Like how excited he was to write it as sexually permissive as. Roddenberry had implied and then like getting told by the the suits no 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 <laughs> you can't do that <laughs> this is 1991 or whatever <laughs> he really seems to be the type that forces that into a conversation like you know I yeah. made Risa yeah <laughs> don't you you know that was me yeah get a load of this goatee guess what's not gonna shock you I invented the fuck planet <laughs> Did you have an Edward Larkin, Adam? A related Larkin. I'm going to go with Brandon Braga, and here's why. Wow. He seems to have taken great care at looking cool <laughs> in this documentary. Like, like I wonder to what extent he participated in the set design of his location. Like, <laughs> it was very dark where he was. The lighting was very moody. He looked very cool in, like, a deep V shirt with with a with a chain yeah and like cool glasses like he puts a different spin on looking cool than iris Stephen bear yeah and one that i think uh <laughs> it's just funny to think of like he's he's not an in front of the camera person but he seems just he seems to have just as great of a sense of vanity as any of the actors involved in this project and I found that fascinating. It's very funny when you're in those scenes and you cut from Brandon Braga to old Shatner who is like yeah. Shatner at this point kind of always looks like he might be about to cry. Yeah. And is a little red in the face and like is you know like not an unhandsome man but yeah. 
the the contrast between the two of them is very striking, given what a sex symbol Shatner was when he was a young man. As a project, it seems like a challenge to uh, maintain that kind of continuity, like to cut between a Brandon Braga interview to to what a Patrick Stewart interview looks like with like the curtains in the back and the and the corporate video lighting, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. You, it's difficult to maintain that throughout and and it's not maintained, which is what makes us an interview like Brandon Braga's stick out the way that it did to, to me. And that's why he's my Edward Larkin. Good Larkin, buddy. Well, as we discussed, uh, next uh, episode of The Greatest Discovery, we're going to do our season one recap of Star Trek Lower Decks. Uh, I'm really excited because we didn't get to do any season recaps uh, in the 27 weeks of New Trek or whatever that we had uh, last time we were in the on season. And uh, Lower Decks uh, is a show I really enjoyed the first season of so i'm i'm looking forward to revisiting it and then after that we are going to be uh cracking in to lower decks itself new new episodes coming really soon yeah it's all happening at once it sure is and we hope you stick around for it yeah uh thanks to everyone that tuned in for this one and here go some credits The Greatest Discovery is an Uxbridge Shimoda podcast on the Maximum Fun Network, and your support makes it possible. We thank those who support The Greatest Discovery on a monthly subscription-style basis, and you can join them by going to MaximumFun.org join. Be sure to follow at Greatest Trek on Twitter and Instagram. Those accounts are a regular source of fun thanks to our social media director, Bill Tilly, the card daddy. Thanks to Adam Ragusia, who made our theme and interstitial music. When he's not making music for us, Adam can be found cooking food on his tremendously popular YouTube channel for his millions of subscribers. Fans of the show call themselves Friends of DeSoto, and you can make friends with them at the many fan-created communities on Discord at DrunkShimoda.com, Facebook, Reddit, and all the rest. For our next episode, we'll be doing a full Season 1 retrospective about Star Trek Lower Decks to prepare for its Season 2 premiere on August 12th. Then the following Tuesday, The Greatest Discovery will be back weekly, recapping all the fun of Lower Decks, as well as all the new Star Trek shows in the months ahead. So we'll see you next time for that on The Greatest Discovery. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.